see the humility of our hearts this morning as we bow in your presence, that we know and that we understand that this life and this world, it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's about you. It's about your purpose for our lives, for this community, for this world in which we live. And we acknowledge this morning that all things are in your control. And we pray in these next few minutes as we look at your word that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice, that we would know what it is that you want to say. May the Holy Spirit have his way in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat, or if you're in your car, you can stay seated. If you're like the Richardsons and you're in your car and you're sitting in your camp chair, then you're all set. We are so glad to be here this morning and thankful for this opportunity to be together. Uh, how many people have ever heard of the Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, it was a book trilogy that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote back in the 30s and the 40s, and I read it in the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s, uh, and that's when I read it, and I'm sure some of you guys have, have read it too, but it really became popular in the early 2000s. Peter Jackson made this trilogy of books into a trilogy of blockbuster movies. I bet a lot more people have seen the movies probably than have uh, read the books, but the books... And the movies are about this eclectic band of brothers, and I'm, I'm going to lose some of you when I say this, but the band of brothers was elves and hobbits and humans, uh, but they came together with one purpose. They were going to destroy the one ring, and they were going to defeat the dark lord Sauron. I see some of you glazing over and not fantasy fans. Okay, stick with me. This matters. I, I'm going somewhere with this. But it's not just a story about destroying the ring. It's a story of friendship. It's a story of brotherhood. And it's a story of the struggle against evil, of evil against good, of light and darkness. And as you get into the movie, you realize it's actually not about the hobbits and the elves. It's about one man. And the man's name is Aragorn. And Aragorn even though most people don't know it, is the rightful king of Gondor. His father was killed. He was sent to live with, sent to live with Elrond and Rivendell with the elves. Isn't this fascinating? <laughs> and nobody knew that he was the heir to Isildur, the king of Gondor. And so the story is, it's not about the ring, it's about Aragorn becoming who he was meant to be. It's about him coming back and reuniting the kingdom and taking the crown and becoming the king. And the third movie, the third book is called The Return of the King. Now, if you've been with us for the last year, we have started in the book of Genesis and we are making our way through the Bible. And this morning, we're in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the 38th book in the Old Testament. It's the second to the last one. And Zechariah is all about, guess what? The return of the king. Not Aragorn, but King Jesus. You see, Israel has been in captivity for 70 years, and last week Tim was talking to us about the book of Haggai, 
And Zechariah takes place at the exact same time that Haggai does. And God sends Zechariah to the people to encourage them. They've been released from captivity. It's been 70 years, and now they're going back to their land, and they're building their houses, and they're building their city, and they're building their temple, but something's missing. What's missing is their king. The royal family has lost its power. The royal family is, is not sitting on the throne anymore. And so God sends Zechariah, and instead of telling them that there's judgment coming, that there's doom coming, which is what a lot of the other books have been. If you've been with us, a lot of the other prophetic books are all about judgment. This one isn't about judgment. This is about encouragement. And Zechariah wants the people to know your king is coming. And there's going to be a day when Israel, this whole land, not just one part of the city, not just a few houses, not just the wall, but the whole thing is going to be completely restored and completely rebuilt. And more importantly for Israel, all of their enemies would be overcome. You see, ever since they had a king, ever since Saul, all the way back in 1 Samuel, there's been war. There have been enemies. There have been people that have been trying to take Israel's land away from them. And by the way, if you watch the news at all, if you've paid attention over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's still happening, isn't it? People are trying to take Israel's land away from them, and Zechariah's encouragement is that one day all of your enemies will be defeated, and there will be peace in your land. And so Zechariah directs their attention way ahead, way ahead of where they are. And he tells them this, one day, one day King Jesus will return to bring justice to the world, to claim his throne and establish his kingdom. And that is the ultimate return of the king. And we're going to see that this promise, the return of the king, is not just for the Jews. It's not just for Israel. It's for us too. Because the Lord is going to rule over the entire earth and all of the nations will worship him. So we're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy from the book of Zechariah in chapter 14. If you have your Bible, you can look at it this morning. And if you don't have your Bible, you can look at the screens. We have screens this morning. Thank you, Clow and Sean. Spent all afternoon yesterday putting these up for us so you can follow along with us as we go. So we're going to look in Zechariah, but as we do that, we're going to see some other passages of Scripture too because if you've ever looked at some of these prophecies, you know the only way to understand them is to kind of bring other parts of Scripture into them. So that's what we're going to do this morning so you get the full picture. Now Daniel 9, we looked at Daniel, I think it was Pastor Tim that... that preached to us from Daniel a few weeks ago. In Daniel chapter 9, he tells us that Israel, one day, this is in the future, it hasn't happened yet, but one day Israel is going to make a covenant with the Antichrist. Now the Antichrist is somebody that's going to come on the scene, and when he does, it's going to seem like he has all the answers. Believe me, and you know this too, our world is looking for answers, right? And there's going to be a day coming when someone is going to come on the scene, he's going to appear to have all the answers and he's going to appear to unite the entire world. But he's a false messiah. He's not the true one. 
Israel's going to make a covenant with him for seven years. Matthew 24 says that halfway through the seven years, he's going to break the covenant. And when he breaks the covenant, it's going to set in motion a whole chain of events of, of terrible judgments. How many people have ever read the book of Revelation or tried to read the book of Revelation? <laughs> and it's going real well until you hit chapter 6 and then all these crazy things start happening and you're like, all right, I'm out. Well, everything that starts happening in chapter 6, all those judgments are going to be set in motion when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with the Messiah halfway through that seven years. And so for the next three and a half years, there's going to be all these judgments, all these terrible things, cataclysmic things, apocalyptic things are going to happen as God judges the earth. And then Revelation 19 tells us this is going to culminate in the battle of Armageddon. And this is where Zechariah's prophecy comes in. So I hope you've been able to follow that little nutshell I've given you. And now let's look at Zechariah, and we're going to see how he predicts the things that are going to happen. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. See, there it is. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Now, Zechariah says in three chapters what John in Revelation takes eight, or three verses rather, what John takes eight chapters to describe. So Zechariah boils it down. It's going to be a horrible time. But he calls it the day of the Lord. A day is coming for the Lord. Now, this phrase is used all through the Bible to describe this time of judgment of God that he unleashes on the world in the end time. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at this and then when we get to the end of it, I want to tell you why this matters. Because for us here right now, we could say, well, you know, why does this matter to us? Why do I need to know this? Well, we're going to see that in just a minute. But what I want you to think about right here is this. We have seen and we have talked about many times in the past years we've walked through the Scripture, but in the past two decades, <laughs> as Tim and I have taught from the Word of God, that God is merciful, right? God's merciful, and he is gracious, and he is loving, and I am so thankful for that. I hope you are too. I was talking to someone just a couple of days ago. I said, I'm so thankful for God's grace because if it wasn't for his grace, I don't know where I would be, but I know I wouldn't be here. So God is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving. But what we're seeing here, folks, is that there's coming a day when God is going to demonstrate that he is also just. He's just. He's loving, he loves this world. Most famous verse in the whole Bible, right? John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world. He loves the world. But he's also just. Let me read a couple of verses for you in 2 Peter chapter 3. As we talk about this, Peter says, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. What promise is Peter talking about? Well, if we backed up and read it, we would find out Peter is talking about this promise. The promise that he's going to come back and judge the world. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. The next verse, or the next phrase I want you to notice. But he is patient toward you. He's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should teach, reach repentance. How many times, even in our lifetimes, if you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower and you are walking with God, how many times have you looked at the world and said, why doesn't God just come back and wipe this mess out? Right? Why? Why, God? Why, why, does this ha- why does all this injustice have to take place? Why do all these terrible things have to happen? Why doesn't God just clean this mess up? You know why? Peter says, because he's patient toward you. Man, I am thankful for God's patience. Because you know what? I'm going to be real honest with you here this morning. I'm not perfect. (laughs) And neither are you. I'm so thankful that God is patient. Every time I do something wrong, he doesn't zing a lightning bolt out of heaven and sizzle me on the spot. He is patient. Man, I'm so thankful for that. He doesn't want people to perish. He would love for all to reach repentance. That's God's desire. So why has it been 2,500 years since Zechariah said that the day was coming when God would gather all the nations to Jerusalem and he would destroy them? Because he's patient. He's patient. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful and is gracious. But the day of the Lord will come. It's going to happen. And when it does, how's it going to get here? What does Peter say? It's going to come like a thief. It's going to come fast. God will suffer his people, my friends. I want you to understand this. God will suffer his people to be mistreated and his glory to be shamed for only so long. There is a limit. What does he say? What does Zechariah says? He say he says, "I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle." You know, I love that phrase, and I'll tell you why I love it. Because since the dawn of human civilization, mankind has always thought he was in control. Mankind has always thought he was calling the shots. But what we see here, Zechariah tells us, is that God is orchestrating all of this. See, when that covenant gets broken, halfway through that seven years, 
and all these terrible judgments come, then all the nations of the earth are going to unite and they're going to say, let's go destroy Israel. Let's go destroy all the Christ followers. Let's wipe them off the face of this earth. They're going to think they're doing it. And yet God is there orchestrating all of it, overseeing all of it and saying, no, no. I'm bringing you together. I'm bringing you together because it's time for judgment. See, Proverbs 21.1 says, the, Lord, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is orchestrating all of this. And so to preserve his people, Zechariah says, the Lord will go out and fight to establish his kingdom. Now, this is very different from the Jesus that we see in the Gospels, isn't it? In just a few weeks, a couple of weeks, Pastor Tim is going to take us into the New Testament. We're going to start looking at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And what are we going to see there? We're going to see Jesus acting with compassion, healing people, Meeting people's needs. In fact, John the Baptist, who was the one who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus, calls him the Lamb of God. The disciples are standing there and John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But do you know what the Apostle John calls him in Revelation? He calls him the Lion of Judah. He's not just the Lamb, he's also the Lion. And the Lord knows who trusts him. The Lord knows those who are in submission to him. And he knows those that are defying him. And on that day, he goes to battle. Verse 4 of Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between and before, or before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain will move northward and the other half will move southward. We refer to this passage a couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Zechariah prophesied this around 500 BC. And so there was a near fulfillment. Jesus came from the Mount of Olives. Remember that? He came down off the ridge, came into Jerusalem. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is yet future. 2,500 years and counting, and it still has not happened yet, but it will be fulfilled on this day. I want you to notice, remember when Jesus rode down off that ridge and came into Jerusalem, remember how he did it? Does anybody remember? It was only two weeks ago. Please encourage me. How did he do it? He came down on a donkey, remember? He came down on a donkey, and they spread palm branches on the ground and spread their jackets on the ground and they came in and they were he came in and they were worshiping him and the people were gathering but this is going to be a whole different scene because this time when Jesus comes to the mount of olives the whole ridge is going to split open with an earthquake and instead of people gathering they're going to scatter because he is coming in judgment. Look at verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. 
So this time when Jesus comes, and he comes down off the Mount of Olives into that valley that Jerusalem lies in, the ridge is going to split open, and he's going to have a whole army with him. Zechariah says it's an army of the redeemed who are going to be with him. We actually have a little bit more detail about this in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to how John describes it. He says, I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Notice this, verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's going to be quite a scene, isn't it? Look at verse 6. Zechariah 14, on that day, this is an interesting verse right in the middle of everything, on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Jesus is coming to destroy the world. Why does it matter that there's no light or cold or frost? Well, several places in God's Word talk about the natural phenomenon that's going to accompany the return of of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 says the sky will be darkened. Isaiah 60 says we'll no longer need the light of the sun. And Revelation tells us it's because the glory of God will provide the light. What does that mean? Why does it even matter? Well, it's just one more demonstration of the Lord's power and his control over everything that is happening. You see, I don't know about you, but I kind of take for granted when I get up in the morning that the sun is going to get up too right? That eventually as the sun comes up, it's going to get a little warmer. And then eventually it's going to go down. We're going to have night. We're going to do the whole thing all over again. And that's how it's been since the dawn of civilization. That's how it's been since the creation of the world. But on this day, God is going to stop those natural cycles and demonstrate that everything is about to change. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 7. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. A unique day, the phrase literally means one day or one continuous day. In other words, the Lord disrupts the natural order of the sun and the moon and the light and the night. And there'll be a continuous time of day and a continuous time of light as he carries out his judgment. What does this say to us? Well, I think it says this, that after thousands of years of patience and mercy and grace and love and kindness of God, it's now time for judgment. And when it's time for judgment, there will be no delay. Elsewhere in the scripture it says, there will be no escape. 
Verse 8 says, On that day living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as it is in winter. These seem like odd details for him to include for us, but they were very meaningful to the people of Israel. Why is that? Well, if you know anything about Middle Eastern geography, the nation of Israel sits in the middle of a desert. There's all kinds of streams, but they only run in the wintertime. In the summer, they dry up, but not now. Isaiah 35 says that in that day, the desert will bloom like a rose. And every time we see running water and living water in the Word of God, it refers to the new life that Christ brings to those who trust Him and those who serve Him. And that's what we're seeing here. Look at verse 9, the last verse we'll read in Zechariah this morning. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. All of His enemies will be defeated. Satan and his demons will be punished and all of the evil of this world is, unjust, is, is defeated. All of the injustice of the world has been righted and given its due. And that's why it says the Lord will be one in his name one. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Lord is multiple and then on that day he'll only be one? No, it just means that on that day everyone will worship the Lord. There will be one system of faith. There will be one religion. And it will be the worship of of the one true God. This is why we're doing this, walking through the entire Bible, remember, so that you can see that the whole Bible is one story. All the way back last May, when Tim got us started in the book of Genesis, do you remember what he talked about? I know you don't remember what he talked about. I'll remind you what he talked about. I'm sure Tim remembers what he talks about. Well, maybe not. I don't know. He talked about the covenant, remember the promise that God made to Abraham and what did God promise Abraham? He said, Abraham, for the rest of eternity, your people will have a land. They will be a nation. They will be a powerful nation. They will impact the entire world and they will be in the spot that I will give them. On this day, that promise will be fulfilled. A few months after that, we were in 2 Samuel, and I talked to you about the covenant that God made with David. And the covenant that God made David was this, David, I'm going to make sure that there is a king from your family on the throne of this world for all of eternity. And on that day, that promise will be fulfilled. This is one story, folks. This is one story, the story of God and what he is doing in this world. So... How does this apply to us? What do we, as 21st century citizens of the world, take away from this for our lives? Why does it matter? We need to understand this beyond the shadow of a doubt, friends, that God's kingdom is coming and that King Jesus will return to bring justice. And when he does that, when he rights every wrong, when he establishes his authority, on that day, and this is what I want you to grasp, this is the thing we must take away from us, with us, is that on the day when he does that, every knee will bow to him. 
your knee will bow. And that is a fact. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen to what he says. This is tying in with Zechariah, with Revelation, with Isaiah. So that at the name of Jesus, listen, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess on that day. Now, some of you that have been around here for a while know I like to dig into the words in the original languages of the Bible, and I like to dig out all the extra meaning and see if there's anything else there that can help us understand. So I did a deep dive on the word every. Guess what it means? Every single one. Every knee will bow. Every person that is in this parking lot today is going to be on their knees before Jesus. And all 5,000 people that live in South Paris are going to be on their knees before Jesus. And all 1.3 million people that live in this state will be on their knees. And all 7.8 billion people in this world on that day will be on their knees before Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 tells us that on that day, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. That means there'll be no rebellion. No, no one's going to be able to say, well, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not bowing to that guy. So if every knee is bowing and every tongue is confessing, that means that some are going to offer their worship willingly and some will offer unwillingly. And those who have trusted Christ and offer their worship willingly will enjoy heaven for eternity. And those who reject him and those who offer their worship unwillingly will be judged and condemned to hell for eternity. That's what Revelation chapter 20 says. It says that after Jesus does this, after this great battle, after he establishes his kingdom, after he returns to the throne and takes the crown, he is going to judge all those who have rejected him. And we read that they will be separated from him in hell for eternity. So why does this matter to us in the 21st century? It matters for this reason. You need to make sure you know what group you're going to be in. You're going to be in the willing group or the unwilling group, the saved group or the lost group, the redeemed group or the condemned group. Will you accept him or reject him? That's the offer that Christ gives all of us. That's the option, the choice. Will you accept him or reject him? Now, I don't, I don't say this. I don't share these things to make those of you who have trusted Christ doubt that you are his. I don't want you to doubt that. If you are his, that is a permanent arrangement between you and God. And he holds you in his hand. And I want you to be thankful for that. 
That is our hope. But I do want you to know, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, that He is the Savior of all who believe. Remember the verses in 2 Peter chapter 3? Why hasn't God done this already? Why hasn't He set this chain of events in motion? Because He is patient. Because He desires that everyone would repent and believe. He is patient. Revelation 11.15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world and the kingdom or uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the Lord's Prayer fulfilled. You know, in six, many of you know the, the Lord's Prayer. And halfway through it, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the day when it will come true. And this is our hope. For those of us here this morning that know Christ, we are the redeemed. We have trusted him as our Savior. We're not perfect. We're not sinless, but we've given thanks for the sacrifice of Christ, and we've trusted him and asked him to forgive us and to cleanse our hearts. This is our hope that one day his kingdom will come. That one day this life with all of its pain and with all of its suffering and all of its sin and evil and injustice will be over. And he will be our God and we will be his people because he's our savior. Savior of everyone who believes. That's our hope. We're going to end our service this morning with one of my favorite songs that we've sung. We've sung this one for a long time. I love it so much. It, it sent a message to us. And I want you to stand with us this morning together. My Savior, my God. That's why all of this matters. Even though it was written 2,500 years ago. Is he your savior? He's the savior of all who believe. You now, in the 1940s, thousands of parchments and scrolls of the scripture were found in a bunch of caves over in the Middle East. It was one of the most important archaeological finds of all time. They became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Last month, for the first time in over 60 years, they discovered another fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what book it was from? Zechariah. Zechariah 8.16 was the fragment that they found. You know what it says? It says, These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. <laughs> well, if that isn't a word that we need for today, I don't know what is. From eternity past, God's word is still the truth today. And it's what we need more than anything. The question is, do you believe it? This is our hope. 
For those of us who know Christ, this is the hope that we have to cling to, that his word will come true, and one day we will see the return of the king. And if you're not a Christ follower, this is also your hope, because God is patient and gracious and loving, and he offers you a chance today to become one of his. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word. And we've only asked one thing, that you would be glorified here today and that people would hear the truth. This is the truth. Father, we need you desperately. We need the grace of Jesus Christ in our own individual lives, in our own hearts. Every person that is here today needs you. And we know that one day every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ. I pray that every knee and every tongue that is represented here today would be willing on that day. Change our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes. Help us to understand what you're doing so that we might be your people and be involved in the building of your kingdom until that day when you return to judge this earth. Until then, Father... Give us your grace. We need it desperately every moment. We will thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. I hope you have a great week.